Good evening, everybody. Welcome back. <clears throat> Welcome to week three of the Book of Lost Tales class. Um, first off, yes, thank you. Uh, several people have been asking already. Yes, my voice is significantly better this week. I'm not 100% over my uh, cold, but it's uh, it's uh, it's nothing but barely lingering. So yeah, I, I, I hope that uh, I'll be in a little bit better shape this week than last week, as far as my voice is concerned. Um, <laughs> Yana's accusing me of <laughs> transmitting my cold to him. Uh, possibly, Yana. I'm not quite sure how that would happen, but I can't. I can't rule it out. Um, but uh, yes, Patrick is hoping that everybody took their antidepressants and uh, has ha- has a nice, comforting cup of tea uh, ready <clears throat> for. Um, uh, uh, for our our two week discussion of uh, of Turambar here, <clears throat> though I have to say, actually, I don't find this version of the story nearly as like you know soul crushingly depressing as I find the Silmarillion version. <clears throat> but we'll see. I mean, we'll we'll we'll, we'll get there. Um, but. Uh, uh, anyway, before first of all, I, I want also I wanted to apologize. I'm sorry I'm a little behind the eight ball uh, tonight. Um, be, uh, getting started a bit late and everything. Uh, even mean like even like later than usual uh, because uh, this week is uh, vacation week. It's winter break here. Schools are on vacation in New Hampshire this week, and uh, I have been taking my family places. They've been skiing. I don't myself ski, but my children do. Uh, so uh, we've been taking our kids skiing, and uh, I just, like, got back in the door, like, ten minutes before class started tonight. So I'm still kind of uh, uh, dashing about, spent most of my day in a ski lodge. We'll be all right. Uh, but anyway, I just wanted to apologize for, uh, as I say, being a little bit uh, uh, late and scattered here this evening. Um uh, I also want to announce uh, before we uh, get going, or not announce, remind, really, um, uh, update at the uh, Lord of the Rings Marathon this weekend. Uh, it's only a couple days away. We still have uh, seats available. It would be really cool. Anybody uh, um, a- anybody who uh, is in the uh, region, <clears throat> I strongly uh, urge you to come. Brandon Young is here. Excellent. Yes, I saw you're coming, Brandon. That's so cool. Um, it's going to be a lot of fun. And uh, the weather looks awesome. I know a lot of people are worried about the about the weather in Boston. Um, yes, the snowbanks are really high, but it's not snowed for days now. The roads are dry. It's perfect. Uh, wonderful conditions. Supposed to be sunny and nice, nice and warm uh, up in the 20s uh, on, on, on Saturday. So it's going to be great. Um, so definitely, if you can possibly make it, uh, I urge you to. So that's, again, this coming Saturday, the 28th of February, uh, in Arlington, Massachusetts. Uh, it will be, uh, it will be a great time. Um, but anyway, let's, um, let's, let's, let's talk about Turumbar and the Foaloke. So, um, as before, you know, I, with this story, I mean, really with all of these stories, especially these well, these are the first three stories that we get in this volume: the story of Tenuviel, the story of Turambar, and the story of the fall of Gondolin. Um, are the three that we're going to be really coming? I mean, we will in the story of the Nauglafring as well. But um, that story, the story of the Nauglafring, is altered so much more radically than these others. Um, I would say um, that. I don't think we're going to be quite as tempted to be sort of putting the later Silmarillion version of the story um, 
you know, next to the uh, next to this version and be sort of continually comparing and contrasting. Um, so I would. Um, uh, but but again, for these first three, I, you know, that's something that we're going to be that we're going to be very conscious of, and that we're always going to be doing. And I want to, you know, just kind of reframe ourselves, like when we were talking about the Tenuvial, uh story. On the one hand, I don't you know desire to resist the the comparison and contrast. It's inescapable and it's healthy. But um, but I also don't want to get fixated on just noticing differences, right? On on just thinking about how this story is not the Silmarillion version of the story. Um, instead, I want to see if we can, at times at least, sort of free ourselves from that version. In, you know, Forget about the Silmarillion version enough to really take this version of the story on its own ground um, and see what really comes from it. Um, I, I already made reference to the fact, you know, Patrick was joking about the antidepressants, and I know I always feel the same way. Um, you know, Patrick, I'll never forget, the first time I taught um, my undergraduate Tolkien class, um, I, uh, you know, I was, I was, I, I was so excited. It was the first time I'd ever taught Tolkien, and I started the class with the Silmarillion, and uh, and I remember I read the Turin story twice, like back to back. Like, you know, I read it and I went started and read it again. So I'm like, I want it all to be like super fresh. I want to make sure I have the whole thing really fresh in my mind. And I was just like, I went into class that first day, and I was like. Hey, everybody. <laughs> I was like, it was just, it was like this weight of grief on me for, uh, for and I'm like, I am never, ever doing that again. Um, but um, <laughs> anyway, um, I, as I mentioned, I don't find that same kind of effect with this version of the story. Um, and and I don't know, I, you know, I'll be interested to hear, as I said, what you guys have to say about that, you know, as we go through this story, um, you know, to see if you agree with me, you know, if that's just, you know, some kind of arbitrary impression based on the circumstances in which I'm reading this version this time, um, or whether there's really some substance there. I think that the character of Turin is very significantly different, um, and I do think that this first version of the story has some qualities to it which are not there. And again, I'm using that word in the same way that I was when we're talking about the Tunuvial story as well. Um, it has some 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 elements. It has some some flavors that the later uh, Turambar story um, doesn't have, and 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 vice versa. So I want to I want to try to identify that. I want to try to figure out what kind of story is this, and how does it fit. How does it fit into the into the book of lost tales as a whole? Because, um, you know, I think that um, uh, I think that this is a story which is even more remarkable in the context of the book of lost tales than it is in the context of the Silmarillion for being a human-centered story. It's already pretty remarkable that way in the Silmarillion. We've had men. Um, you know, involved in stories, and we've sort of lingered on them for 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 you know important moments. In the, in, I'm talking about in the published Silmarillion now. Um, you know, men have been involved and have done lots of things, but the story of Turin Turambar is really the only story in the entire Silmarillion which is focused on men. There are elf characters, of course, in it, most notably Beleg, um, and you know we've got the whole Thingol and Melian portion of the story, but but but. You know, an Oradreth. It's not that there aren't elves, but it really is a story 
primarily about people. It, you know, focuses from beginning to end on Turin much more exclusively than, uh, obviously, than the Baron and Luthien story focuses on Baron. Um, but notice, again, this is another impact of the change that Tolkien made in Baron's race, right? By making Baron an elf, it makes the Turambar story stand out even more. Now, this is really the first significant story we've got about humans at all um, in the entire Book of Lost Tales. Uh, so that, I think, is, is a remarkable thing. And in light of that, let's look at how we're introduced to this. Uh, again, one of the things that we get in the Book of Lost Tales, which really separates it from um, really every version of the story that comes out, uh, every version of these stories that come after it, is the frame narrative, right? The whole aerial plot in the tellers of the story um, that... Uh, uh, that he is uh, uh, that that he that he you know gives these stories to, um, and you know those of you who took uh, my Chaucer class, my Canterbury Tales class, will remember the sort of fun we had thinking about how Chaucer employs his frame tale um, to you know sort of add these extra layers of uh, of story, right? These these extra dimensions to the poems and the stories that he's telling by framing them in the in the you know in the voice of a particular teller who has his or her own uh, individual interests and personality and relationship with the story. Now, we don't get anything nearly as elaborate, of course, as the Canterbury Tales frame in the Book of Lost Tales. Um, but it's it's sort of a step in that direction. Um, and uh, you know, I think for instance, well, even more significantly, I think, with the next story, with the fall of Gondolin and the introduction we get to the to the narrator in that story. But I want to I want to I want to look at the frame that we get before the Turin story because this one I think is uh, is really interesting. Now, all folk gathered here know that this is the story. This is Eltas, the 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 person. Um, I say person because his his race is a little bit uncertain. At least he's not introduced as a man, though he seems to be one. But anyway, now all folk gathered here know that this is the story of Turambar and the Foaloke, and it is, said he, a favorite tale among men, and tells of very ancient days of that folk before the battle of Tesaranan, when first men when first men entered the dark vales of Hisalome. In these days many such stories do men tell still, and more have they told in the past, especially in those kingdoms of the north that once I knew. Maybe the deeds of other of their warriors have become mingled therein, and many matters beside that are not in the most ancient tale. But now I will tell to you the true and lamentable tale, and I knew it long ere I trod Alore Male in the days before the fall of Gondolin. Okay, um... Yana just asked the $50 question. Um, how could he be an adult man in the Lonely Isle? I don't know, Yana. That's what's so peculiar. And remember, in the commentary, Christopher Tolkien points this out, too, and, and says he really wishes his father had given a little bit more detail about this teller, because it's a peculiar sort of thing. Um, he, the, he seems to be human, not an elf, um, the teller. 
Um, and that seems to be pretty clear because of the context in that second paragraph. Um, it, it, in these days, many such stories do men tell still, um, and uh, more have they told, especially in those kingdoms of the north that once I knew. Um, it sounds like he's um, in that human culture, but more importantly, I knew it long ere I trod Olore Male in the days before the fall of Gondolin. And the Olore Male is uh, something we learned about in Book of Lost Tales Part 1, you may remember, um, and that is the Path of Dreams. It is the, uh, the, this, the magical path connecting the world of men uh, to, uh, to, to, to Elvenholm, um, which, uh, uh, which human children can travel in their dreams. Um, it's, a, it's the Path of Dreams, uh, and remember the teller, our previous teller, Veyane, um, the teller of Tenu of the Tenuviel story, said that she once saw Luth, uh, you know, Tenuviel and uh, uh, and Gwendolyn. Um, you know, she saw Tenuviel and her mom um, uh, when she had traveled the Alora Mali. So we had another reference to that then. So she once on the dream road saw um, saw Tenuviel uh, and her divine mother. Humans, human children specifically, tread the Alora Male. So it seems pretty clear that this kid is human. We know that there are human children there in the in uh, um, in the, the the Lonely Isle. There, you know, in the in the house. But he sure doesn't sound like a child. Um, you know, maybe, um, but. Uh, um, I mean, yeah, Nick says, was he one of the children uh, from the, the 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 House of Lost play? Um, the time frame is really difficult to hear, to understand. Um, I knew it long ere I trod Alore Male in the days before the fall of Gondolin. Um, like how old is he? How long ago um, was this? I mean, it, you know, the, it, it's... Um, I, I, I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer this. It, it's. It's the, the the information that we get on this teller is very tantalizing, but it's really kind of unclear, um, and I don't really know what was in his mind here. But the one thing that does seem pretty clear is whatever else the explanation of of the way this presumably juvenile teller. Is uh, is introducing this story, or is sort of re- reflecting back on his own life? Um, at the very least, he seems clearly to be human. Just again, based on the fact that he has trodden the Alora Male, um, so we get an emphatically human teller of this emphatically human tale. Um, what else do you notice in this passage? What else strikes you as interesting uh, in here? You know, one thing that I would point out from the beginning is that this is a favorite tale among men. Um, it was something that even, I mean, I remember from, you know, well, I was going to say the first time I read The Silmarillion, I should say, or I can read the first time I successfully read The Silmarillion, um, being almost a little perplexed. I mean, you know, as you go through... <laughs> what a confession, right? First time I read the Silmarillion, I was a little perplexed. Uh, no, no, no. What I mean is specifically um, with the long stories, right? Both in the published Silmarillion, both the story of Baron and Luthien and the story of Turin Turambar, um, 
get um, they're they're introduced with this they're sort of flagged as the longest tales right um, I mean you could tell that by the table of contents if you looked carefully but uh, but at the beginning of those we're reminded right you know this is the longest tale save one it says at the beginning of the of the story of Baron and Luthien and then you know this is you know the the, the tale of the children of Huron is the longest tale of all um, and you know it's not that length equals greatness, you know, in any kind of simple way, but nevertheless, it's uh, it's hard not to be paying special attention uh, to these tales, right? It's not to feel like some special distinction is being um, is being placed upon them um, by them, you know, being singled out that this is the longest and the second longest of all the stories. Um, and uh, with the Baron and Luthien story, that always made sense. I mean, it's obviously really important, right? Um, uh, this, you know, not only is the story a story of, like, you know, really kind of the greatest and most heroic events that happen um, I mean at least as great as anything else that happens in the Silmarillion the story of Turin Turinbar not so much right and and again here I was um, I was also influenced by the fact that I knew the Lord of the Rings quite well when I uh, read the Silmarillion for the first time since I didn't get through it till I was older and um, and I remembered the references to Turin in the Lord of the Rings right so I came to the story um, with high expectations, um, you know, because uh, I, you know, I've been told that uh, you know Turin was listed as among those foremost elf friends that Elrond lists at the end of the Council of Elrond, saying that Frodo's name would be among the greatest of all the elf friends, including uh, you know, including Beren and 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 uh, Hurin and Turin. Um, so uh, you know. With that introduction, it's the longest of all the tales. With the, uh, with the, the, the you know the fact that Turin was cited twice in the Lord of the Rings as being you know one of the greatest of the greats, I was ready for the most heroic story of all, and I was kind of surprised and appalled by what I actually found when I read the story of Turin Turinbar. Um, and again, this is circling back around. Uh, to that first paragraph here in the Book of Lost Tales version, why is it a favorite tale? It's obvious that it's one of Tolkien's favorite tales uh, in the number of times he retold and reworked this story. He obviously loved it. But how are we supposed... But I'm not interested in that so much. What I'm interested in is how... Why? What are we supposed to understand? Why within the wor- his secondary world are we to understand that this is a favorite story? Um... um what makes it a favorite of the guy who's telling this? Um, <laughs> Kay says, after all, my build-up to Turin, she says, and then Turin himself happens, right? Yeah, and then Turin bumbles his way uh, through his own story. Um, uh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sarah King is wondering if perhaps this, it's a favorite tale among men. Uh, she's wondering if perhaps that was a that was a typo, uh, and Tolkien meant uh, a favorite tale among marsh wiggles instead. I, I do think that uh, uh, that Puddleglum would really enjoy uh, the Tour and Tourambar story. Uh, in fact, uh, Sarah, I would l- if um, I think it would be really I think it would be really funny. To uh, you know, have that as kind of like an Easter egg. You know, if I were doing like an illustration of the silver chair, you know, to have uh, Puddleglum, uh, you know, reading or carrying around a copy of the Narn, uh, you know, his favorite bedtime reading. Um, but um, uh, but anyway, okay. So now, but no, more seriously, Carita is suggesting um, that uh, stories about dragons and men are still favorite tales among humans. Yes, yes, that's true. Though. 
<laughs> they usually end better than this one does. Um, uh, nor, I mean, the majority, I would say, I, I think it's fair to say that the majority of heroic dragon-slaying tales that are popular among humans um, contain less incest and fewer suicides uh, than this story does, uh, on average, anyway. Um, but again, what's, what is it? What is it with with this story? And, and you know, in a sense, we kind of touched on this a little bit last time, too, um, thinking about the ending of the Baron and Tenuvial story, um, and the way in which the kind of triumphant epic conclusion of the story, that is, the final and ultimate sacrifice that, that Luthien makes for Baron, um, not being there because unnecessary, because Baron's an elf, um, and the, 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 the change in fate that Baron and Tenuvial experience at the end of the tale in, like, version C, right, of the ending, um, is, uh, is not about, you know, sacrifice and, you know, sort of the final and ultimate statement of their love and commitment to each other, but rather, um, just a consequence that's meted out to them in order to make sure that they understand that they're not getting a completely happily ever after story, right? Mandos makes that pretty clear, right? I'll send you back, but don't think I'm getting soft, right? Don't think I'm just trying to make you happy, because that's not what this is about. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I mean, doesn't it almost sounds at times, you know, in that in that ending, like Mandos is trying to be like, don't think... Uh, don't want to get around that I'm getting soft. I don't want to. I don't want to damage my uh, my 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 hardcore rep- reputation here as God of the Dead. But um, anyway, I uh, um, nevertheless like the sadness of that story. Right, the the lack of uh, you know a triumphant or even a triumphal happy ending at the end of the Baron and Tenuvial story is a really interesting choice. And in this one. This is a much sadder story, um, and yet it too seems to be powerful. It too is important um, and is really valued. Why? Why? It, it, in in some ways, it even has um, it's even singled out less for that um, in here than it is in the published Silmarillion. Um, the business about the grave of the hapless and the um, you know, the, 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 their island and stuff um, afterwards is even more striking. Um, but we'll come back, of course, to the ending of this story here. Um, but uh, but anyway, I want to look at a few more of your observations here. Um, yeah, good. I mean, as Yana says, uh, um, why is it a favorite tale among men? Because they, they really don't come across well in this story. Yeah, I mean, it's not that, like, the race of man as a whole comes off looking terrible in this story, necessarily, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's not like, uh, it's not exactly, like, good propaganda either, you know, I mean, it's not like you would say, hey, uh, um, you know, if you're talking to a skeptical elf, right, who thinks that humans aren't, aren't worth anything, it's not like you'd be like, well, I mean, read the Tornabar story, and then I'll answer all your questions about that, right? I mean, in that sense, Yana, it's, um, it's it's not like it's. I mean, again, the Baron and Luthien story, the later Baron and Luthien story, 
would do that. In fact, that is exactly the role that it plays within the published Silmarillion, right? Where Thingol's like, hey, look at Baron, I guess men aren't so bad after all, right? Um, hard to see the story of Turin by itself having that kind of effect. Um, okay, let's see. Um, yeah, good, let's see. Um, a lot of... Um, um, A couple people are pointing out that about the business about um, other stories being mixed up uh, with this one. That's sort of a, a kind of a classic sort of Tolkien reference, right? As he's as the teller of this story, again in a very non-childlike way, is going back and trying and, and saying like, you know. This legend has been mingled with other legends over the years, right? So that many times when you hear the story of Turin, um, what you're really hearing is like a greatest hits of the heroic past. Um, you know, th- things which have been attached to him um, that really are the deeds of other warriors. But now, he says, I will tell to you the true and lamentable tale. Um, I almost wonder if he's specifying both, right? That is to say, the version of the story you normally hear is both less true and less lamentable than the true story, right? Um, the other story is a little more cheerful. I'm going to tell you the real story, which is deeply lamentable. Um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay, just scanning through some of the other comments here. Um Yeah, good. Um, <laughs> Nancy uh, Fosberg says in this version of the story, even Urin is a jerk. Um, you know, we'll, we'll we'll come to that, Nancy, uh, next time when we look at the end of the story. We'll look at at, at Urin uh, and how Urin is depicted, especially um, in his uh, dealings uh, with Tinwilent at the end. Um, Okay. Uh, let's see. Good. Um, yeah, Josh Evans points out. You know, it's a dark and terrible time for humans. In many ways, this is you know, it's it's a true version. It's a true story to um, uh, to the um, to the times. You know, and to uh, as uh, somebody else earlier who was it was talking. Oh yeah, uh, Brandon was talking about how it's it's sort of indicative of of all human folly, right? That, you know, to be, you know, to some extent, to be, you know, there is a way in which Baron, you know, the the, 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 the later story of Baron, the, you know, the story of, of, of Baron the human hero might be one which sort of elevates humanity, right? Um, you know, he sort of shows what, you know, uh, what, what, what humanity at its heroic apex is capable of. Um, Turin instead shows what people mostly do, right? Um, not, it doesn't show humanity at its worst, but shows more what people are kind of like. Um, and so in that way is, is a more true, um, is sort of more true to humanity uh, than, than, uh, than, than other stories. Um, Tom, I think this is a really important thing. Tom Hillman says, it addresses head-on, not that it answers, the problem of death and fate that men see themselves facing. Think of Andreth, the cheerful wise woman. Yeah, uh, of course, Tom is being sarcastic here. She's not extremely cheerful. Um, but absolutely, um, this is a story which does, 
I think, wrestle much more directly with what it means to be human, both in the sense of, uh, you know, Brandon, as you were suggesting, the kind of folly that, 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 that Turin shows and, you know, how, how flawed he is and how much he screws up. Um, you know, in that way, Turin, although we might not like to think so, represents us better than Baron does as, hum- as, as humans, right? Again, the later Baron I'm talking about. Um, but, um, but it's not only, not, not only is that true, but as Tom suggests, um, it, it really depicts the human situation, um, not just in giving us a character to relate to in that way, or one who, um, you know, one who sort of uh, 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 demonstrates our own our own follies and, and, and our and our own weakness, um, but the challenges that we as mortals face, um, death and fate. Both, I agree, Tom. Um, you know, in that question, what was Turin's situation? You know, does. Turin deserve what happens to him, or does he just get the shaft? How much free will does he have? How much does he shape his own fate? Is he in fact Turinbar, uh, master of his own fate? Or is he not? Is that completely empty? Is he just a victim? Um, And, Tom, you're right, it doesn't really answer that question, but it asks that question really emphatically. And that does seem to be, um, thinking back, uh, Tom, as you suggest to Andreth, the cheerful wise woman, um, that question of what is, what, what is the situation of human beings, in fact? Um, wh- where are we? Um, what exactly are we facing? And what can we expect? Um, uh, it's one of the subjects of the debate between Andreth and Finrod in the Athrobeth of, uh, uh, in this is, uh, the references here, of course I should explain for people who are not familiar with it, is with the, that wonderful short story that Tolkien wrote uh, in, uh, in Morgoth's Ring. It was published in Morgoth's Ring by Christopher Tolkien, Volume 10 of the History of Middle-Earth, and it's called The Athrobeth, or The Debate, between Finrod and Andreth, Andreth being a wise woman, um, and Finrod, of course, meaning Finrod Feligund. Um, so it's, it's a debate between the two of them, and one of the main things that's at issue, especially in the first quarter, third of that debate, um, is... The question of like to what extent has mankind simply been hosed? You know, like they've been doomed to death. Um, you know, uh, has man been screwed over, or do they deserve it? Right? Andreth is essentially arguing that mankind has been screwed over and just dealt a bad hand, and it's not their fault, and they can't do anything about it. And uh, uh, Finrod suspecting that they kind of did deserve it, and it's probably actually their fault. Um, anyhow, there's um. Uh, there's a lot that we can look at, and uh, you know this. This is some, some of the stuff that I really want to focus on as we as we look at the story itself. I still think it's interesting that it's a favorite tale, right? That's a really interesting word to me because it. it he doesn't say the most moving tale told among men, right? Nor like tale which, though it may be unpleasant to listen to, is 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 extremely important to heed, right, or, 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 you know, raises these really critical issues. It's the favorite tale, right? It's the tale they want to hear again and again. 
why? Why do they? Well, anyway, you know, I don't expect to answer this question in the first paragraph, but I think it's an important um, uh, it's an important question to be keeping in mind as we go through. Just like keep reminding yourself as we're talking about this story, this is a favorite tale among men. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Anyway, okay. Um, let's. Uh, and I, there's a bunch of people making comments. I, I, I want to make. Sure, I, I want to move on. Um, if uh, one of the comments you guys have made in the last three or four minutes comes up again, please feel free to post it again. I know I'm not seeing all of them right here, um, but um, uh, but let's move ahead and uh, um, start looking at the, uh, the 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 content of the story. And I want to start off with this issue of Turin and his destiny. Right, we see him being cursed by Melko, right? Um, you know, Melko has taken Hurin, and Hurin has stood up to him, and Melko curses his kin and sentences Hurin to watch as he makes his son's life into a torment. So, we already know in this, you know, as in all of the versions of the Turin story, we know before Turin's story itself begins, that Melko is setting out uh, to make his life a torment. Um, so, let's... Um, Let's look at this initial description, which I... And again, this is not at the very beginning. This is during his time in, uh, I almost said, in Doriath, in Artenor, um, with Tinwellint. But I find this really interesting. Thus came to pass the dwelling of Turin in the halls of Tinwellint. And with him was suffered to dwell Gumlin the aged, who had fared with him out of Hithlam, and had no heart or strength for the returning. Very much joy had he in that sojourn, yet did the sorrow of his sundering from Mavwen never fall never quite away from him. Great waxed his strength of body, and the stoutness of his feet got him praise, wheresoever Tinwellent was held as lord, yet he was a silent boy and often gloomy, and he got not love easily, and fortune did not follow him, for few things that he desired greatly came to him, and many things at which he labored went awry." For nothing, however, did he grieve so much as the ceasing of all messengers between Mavwin and himself, when, after a few years, as has been told, the hills became untraversable, and the ways were shut. Now Turin was seven years old when he fared to the woodland elves, and seven years he dwelt there while tidings came ever and anon to him from his mother, so that he heard how his sister Nianori glue to a slender maid and very fair, and how things grew better in Hithlam, and his mother more in peace." And then all words ceased, and the years passed. What do you see here? What what do you see as significant as his in this description of Turin's life? Right, trying to think about thinking about sort of the the the, the sort of frame because in a sense I, I see this as another almost like a framing passage, not a frame for the story as a whole in the same way as the first one, of course, um, but as a frame for the story of Turin's actions, because we haven't yet gotten any of Turin's own actions. He didn't choose to leave uh, his home, you know, to leave his mother and to come to the to the court of Tinwellant. His mother made that decision, and he had to go along with it. Um, we're told that he's doing things, you know, that he's he is doing stout feats, apparently. Uh, stout feats are being accomplished, but we don't know what they are. Um, you know, none of those are being listed. The first, the first event of the story, the first action that Turin performs is, 
you know, when he smashes the elf's face with his with his drinking vessel. Um, this paragraph is the lead-in to this, finally, to the story of the first thing that we see him doing. Um, so, again, we're given a kind of a context here, trying to understand Turin's mindset, his mood, uh, to use that word in the, in the archaic sense in which, uh, uh, in which Tolkien so often uses it. Um, Tolkien, of course, thinking of the, of the Anglo-Saxon word mode, um, which was a, a, well, I was about to say a complex word. By that, really, I just mean a word which does not have any single equivalent in modern English. Certainly, the modern word mood uh, is, uh, is a, 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 a pale shadow of the old word. Um, but, um, I mean, it kind of means it means mind, but it kind of means more like frame of mind. But it also has that sense of 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 emotion to it, which which we do still, which you know, which meaning still kind of lingers in the modern word mood. Um, but um, uh, you know, it also means like your spirit, your your like your you know. If you have great mode, you know you might. It's like greatly daring, you know, a great uh, great gumption, you know. Anyway. Anyway, um, so we're learning something of his mood. We're learning something of his spirit. We're learning something of his life here to contextualize his actions. And what do we learn? What do we learn? Um, <laughs> Yana says the description of Neonore seems creepy in hindsight. Um, yes, a little bit. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I hear that. Um, uh <laughs> Arthur was saying that too. Turin, stop thinking about your pretty sister. Yeah, Arthur, that could grow into a an unfortunate habit, couldn't it? Um, yeah. I, um, but Carita, I agree with you. I find this description of Turin very pitiable. Um, that you know he got not love easily. Um, it is. I mean, you know, uh, you know, Nancy is sort of joking about him being a um, him being a, 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 a like a sulky teenager. And yeah, he does seem like kind of a sulky teenager, but but it's it's you know that's what what I think is important about this passage is that rather than sort of seeing him from without, right? That is looking on Turin and seeing him, you know, in how others would see him, we're given here a glimpse of his own perspective, right? Of his own um, of his own outlook, um, and I agree with Carita that line. Um, you know that he got not love easily. Um, is is pitiable. I mean, he's a silent boy and often gloomy, and he got not love easily. And fortune did not follow him, for the few for few things that he desired greatly came to him, and many things at which he labored went awry. Um, uh, it does sort of suggest we can see his desire for things, his desire which are thwarted, um, you know, and his laboring for things which labor goes awry, and you know the end which he is trying to achieve slips through his fingers, and by implication, at least the implication that I take from he got not love easily. Um, I mean, you could read that relatively callously as he was an unlikable kid. Right, uh, I mean, nobody really liked him because you know he was silent and gloomy and depressing and um, uh, sullen, maybe. And um, I, you can read it that way, 
But again, especially in the context of few things that he desired greatly came to him, right? Um, implies to me that he wanted love, but didn't get it easily, right? Um, and especially in the in the overall context of his separation from his mother, right? Whom we know that he loves, and whom we know that he is, so here he is alone, cared for, uh, you know, cherished even, in the court of the Elven King, and yet, um, you know, he doesn't get love easily. Uh, and that is, that's, that's sad. I, 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 Sarah King says, you know, uh, uh, she's inclined to think it's significant that he, he can't, he can't make things, you know, that the, that the work of his hands doesn't bear fruit. Um, you know, the things at which he labored went awry. Um, and that's interesting, sir. I hadn't, hadn't really thought of it like that. I mean, I don't necessarily think that we have to interpret that in terms of actual, you know, craftsmanship, you know, that he's actually, you know, that uh, the things at which he's laboring are necessarily like stuff that he's making. It may mean that sort of more abstractly. Um, but, um, but nevertheless, I, I agree that there is a significance in the fact that, um, you know, the things that he tries to make fail. And we're told that, um, you know, before we see him making some of his, uh, uh, uh rather unfortunate decision. Um, I, my subtitle for this passage, I called it Turin's uh, Unhappiness. Um, and I did that mostly sort of making a pun on that second word. Um, because, of course, it is unhappy. We see that he, his childhood is an unhappy childhood, separated from his mother, and, um, and you know, we see some of these circumstances which led to his unhappiness. But it's also unhappy in a more literal sense. The word happy, um, you know, comes from the word hap uh, uh, in, 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 you know, in Middle English, an Old English word, um, the same word exactly, Tom, that hapless comes from. Hap just means luck. Um, uh, you know, in Middle English, you can still people saying, you know, say things like "have good hap" um, or "I wish you good hap." Um, it just means luck, um, and um, uh, so I uh, so, so uh, talking about his uh, his uh, his unhappiness, um, meaning meaning. And by the way, I think that that's how Tolkien used that word. Like, uh, um, if you. Um, uh, you think of that line, that wonderful sentence in the Silmarillion um, that describes human beings, uh, you know, the, the race of men in Middle-earth, um, you know, like the end of the First Age and in the Second Age, where it says, and the lot of men was unhappy. Remember that sentence? Um, I, I, I believe Tolkien means that in the old sense. That is, that they were they were unlucky. They were, un, they were unfortunate. They were, um, you know, not like they were all, you know, gloomy and kind of depressive, right? But rather, um, you know, they were, they were, they were out of luck. You know, they, they, uh, um, life was tough for them. Um, and life was tough for Turin in this way as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Arthur points out that we see Turin's abandonment issues much more prominently than we do in the later story. Um, Yes, yes, I agree. I think there is much more focus here. And again, to to note to 
notice I'm, tr- I'm trying, Arthur, I'm trying to do both, right? On the one hand, as you are very appropriately noticing that difference between this version and the later version, but now, having noticed that, now let's put the later version aside. What we see here is this story, the beginning of this story, is much more emphatically the story of an aband- uh, essentially an orphaned boy, right? Um, I think that I do think that that element is a much more important element in this story, um, and we will um, we will move on. Yeah, Carita says Turin is very hapless in this story. I agree. Um, uh, look, look what um, um, look what happens when he does finally make his first bad call, right? When he, his, his, when he does his first ill deed in the slaying of Orgoth. Um, uh, that, of course, is a very striking element in the story. You know, we, of course, we recognize the, uh, the haughty elf who taunts Turin um, for his, uh, his being unkempt. Um, and uh, I hope you enjoyed Tolkien's use of the opposite of that, actually using the word kempt. Again, that's another uh, another old, you know, classic word, kempt, uh, in, in, in Middle English. Middle English just meant combed. Um, uh, you know, you comb in the present tense, and it, it, it has been kempt in the past, you know, that's the past participle. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, so, you know, he, he, you've got Orgoff speculating that the women of Hithlum are, 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 go about uh, uh, unkempt, um, and then Turin throwing his... Um, Drinking vessel into the into the you know and smashing the face of Orgoff, which we expect, but then we see Orgoff in fact being stricken dead by that blow, which comes as a bit of a surprise when we're coming from the Silmarillion perspective. Um, uh, what do you make of this? What do you make of that? What do you make of that incident? How did that incident strike? And this is really the first action, the first scene of Turin um, that we get, other than this kind of overview that we're getting of his earlier life. This is really kind of the first incident of his adult career here. Um, Orgoff had it coming. Well, yeah, that's what the court decided, right? When Tinwellin said it. I mean, he doesn't exactly say it that way, but that's pretty much, you know, what he decides. You know, he, he, he finds... He finds, uh, you know, Turin guilty. It's like, you know, basically... Uh, Let's him off of the manslaughter conviction uh, because Orgoff had it coming, right? I mean, that's um, pretty much what everybody agrees. Um, uh, yeah, look at his uh, look at his reaction. Oh, wait, 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 hang on. Before we look at his reaction here, I want to touch briefly on the on the point that Tom made because it is an important one. Um, uh, Tom is reminding us that Turin still did find very much joy in Doriath. Um, which he doesn't... We don't get those references in the later story. Um, we know he's becoming famous. We understand, at least Beleg leads us to understand in the Silmarillion version, that he and Turin were happy, you know, together as comrades out on the marches. Um, but um, but we don't get that sense, that sense of joy. And Tom, I do think that's important. We see him being unhappy. We see him not getting love easily. We see him being desolate in his separation from his mother, um, and and all that that seems to mean to him. But 
he's not miserable in Doriath. He does find joy there. And that, I think, is really poignant then when we look at his reaction to this killing he's just accidentally done. Well, like it was an accident in the sense that he didn't mean to kill him, right? I just meant to, to I just meant to break his mouth. I didn't, I didn't mean to kill him. Um, then all men rose in silence, but Turin, gazing aghast upon the body of Orgoth and the spilled wine upon his hand, turned on his heel and strode into the night. And some that were akin to Orgoth drew their weapons half from their sheaths, yet none struck, for the king gave no sign, but stared stonily upon the body of Orgoth, and very great amaze was in his face. But Turin laved his hands in the stream without the doors, and burst there into tears, saying, Lo, is there a curse upon me? For all I do is ill. And now is it so turned that I must flee the house of my foster-father, an, an outlaw guilty of blood, nor look upon the faces of any I love again. And in his heart he dared not return to Hithlam, lest his mother be bitterly grieved at his disgrace, or perchance he might draw the wrath of the elves behind him to his folk. Wherefore he got himself far away, and when men came to seek him, he might not be found. Um, How awful is this? the tears of Turin, right? Um, One of the things I find so striking here, in the whole Doriath sequence, you know, in the Cyros, with the whole Cyros incident and everything in the later uh, versions of the story, um, Cyros had it coming, I don't feel bad for Cyros, Uh, uh, I find Turin, like, kind of understandable and everything, I'm, I'm, I'm not against him, but it doesn't... I don't find it moving, you know? I don't feel inclined to weep for Turin in those scenes in the later version of the story. But this is so sad. Is there a curse on me? For all I do is ill. I mean, I just... I lost my temper and threw my cup at the guy's face and it killed him, right? And now I'm... And now, because, like, the guy... I accidentally threw the thing too hard and the guy died... Um, uh, now, like, I must flee the house of my foster father, right? So, okay, I mean, just think, notice the weight on all of these phrases. I must flee the house of my foster father. Um, the one place that I have found joy, um, even though I'm still, you know, I, I, I feel alone and cut off, yet at least I've been fostered and, 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 and have found some love here uh, and have found joy. But now... You know, it's not about the king, it's not about the court, it's not about, uh, it's, it's, it's about the house of his foster father, right? And now I have to leave an outlaw guilty of blood, right? I killed a guy, and now I've got to go. Um, and uh, so not only, do, not only am I losing my foster father and, and, and his entire house, um, I'm leaving in disgrace, right? An outlaw. So I've lost, um, I've certainly lost his love, and uh, and and I've lost my honor, and I've lost my, I've lost everything um, through this one, you know, semi-accident. Um, nor look upon the faces of any I love again, um, which shows maybe he didn't get love easily, but he does seem to give love, right? He speaks as if there are many people there in the in the in the house of Tinwelland whom he loves. 
and now he won't be able to see any of them again. Um, and, uh, and he doesn't dare to go to Hithlam. He doesn't dare to go home for two reasons. Again, these reasons are not given in the later version of the story, as Christopher points out. Um, he's ashamed. He doesn't want to face his mom because he fears that his mother will be bitterly grieved at his disgrace. You know, to come back like, I'm, you sent me to the king for fostering, and he took me in and loved me, and then I killed a man in his hall, and now I'm a murderer and an outlaw, and I have to come home, right? Um, he doesn't dare to face his mom for sh- So now it's like, on top of this, he's lost his mother again, right? Now, you know, he was geographically removed from her, but now he's in his own mind, infinitely removed from her. Now, he can't say... Even if she were to come, he would have to avoid her, right? Because he can't bear to look on her for shame. And, um... Uh... And even notice the assumptions that he makes about Tinwellant, right? Um, perchance he might draw the wrath of the elves behind him to his folk. He can't go back to his mom... to his mom's, not only because of the shame, but because he he's so convinced... Um, that he did wrong, and that he's lost the love of Tinwellant, that he believes the elves are going to pursue him in arms. Uh, and, uh, and, and you know, he doesn't dare go back for fear of drawing an avenging elvish army after him uh, to uh, pursue him into Hithlum. Um, it's, um, uh, it's pretty awful. Um, uh, and uh, <laughs> we got confession time. Karina's confessing that in a fit of temper, she once threw a soda can at her brother's head once, but didn't kill him. Um, see, Karina, now imagine, imagine if you'd thrown your soda can at your brother's head and he died from it. <laughs> imagine what, I mean, man. Uh, yeah. Um, and I bet, uh, I bet Orgov had it coming worse than your brother did. But still, um, and of course, his own tears, right? You know, it's, as he is weeping for this, I, I feel that passages like this, especially in the context of that description of his life and outlook in Doriath before, um, I find, as a reader, this recruits my sympathies to Turin's side much more powerfully than almost anything that we get in the later versions of the story. You know, this is a guy who... this I mean, this speech shows the tenderness of his own heart, right? The, um, you know, he's not making... The, he's not leaving Artenor out of, um, out of, you know, arrogance or out of pride, out of... Uh, um, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's out of mistaken... You know, he draws the wrong conclusion, um, but it's a very understandable conclusion, and it's uh, uh, anyway, it's very sad. Um, but uh, and I love the the sort of the metaphor. The, the metaphor. He's got the spilled wine on his hand that he has to wash off. Right, it's like blood uh, on his hand, and he is clearly seeing it as sort of a symbol. Right, that he now has blood on his hands, and he he goes out and tries to wash it off. Um, but it isn't really blood, right? It's wine. And he's not... Likewise, he's not guilty of murder, right? He's actually overreacting to this. And the terrible, terrible tragedy is that 
his own really, really sad conclusions about his state and how he's now destroyed his whole life are actually, uh, in, you know, inaccurate. Um, yeah, Ethan, Pyle says it really well. Ethan says he's trying harder in this version, which makes his failures that much more lamentable. Um, yeah, we'll all great almost ocean wash this wine clean from my hand, uh, says Sarah King. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Um, he's not quite channeling Macbeth to that extent, but, but uh, um, yeah, is he going, uh, uh, is he going all of great Olmo's ocean to incarnadine? Uh, I, don't, I don't think so. Um, uh, with, not with the wine, anyway. Um, yeah. Um, Arthur says, I have a teenager, and some of this reminds me of the unending drama that is the teenage life. Yeah, and perhaps this is uncharitable in me, Arthur. Um, but of course, Tolkien, when writing this, was a heck of a lot closer to that himself, right? I mean, remember, Tolkien was 25, maybe, when he wrote this? 26? I mean, he's right around, like, mid-20s when he wrote this. You know, uh, uh, teenage drama was not so far behind him at that point. Um, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not... Those of you in your mid-twenties, I'm not casting aspersions, I'm just saying. Uh, I'm just saying that Tolkien, when he wrote this story, was closer to his own teenage years than either Arthur or I am. Uh, that's all. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> um, and it's kind of interesting that he seems to... Uh, uh, he, 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 he seems more in touch uh, with, uh, with, that, with that point of view. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mary Rose uh, Minnick says, I can't stop thinking of that Charlie Brown quote, everything I touch gets ruined. Uh, so now I'll forever think of Turin as the Charlie Brown of the Lost Tales. Um, sort of. I, 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 slightly more violent um, than Charlie Brown. Uh, but, uh, 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 um, but yeah, yeah. Something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, okay. When he finds... Moving on from here to his next tragedy. So Okay, so he leaves. Now remember, again, in the published Silmarillion, remember, he this is the first time he changes his name? Okay. Bonus points. Who remembers his name? Right? In Silmarillion... What name does he take for himself when he leaves Doria? And what does it mean? Good. Yes. Nathan, the wronged. Right. Um, in the Silmarillion, Turin leaves Doriath in... Well, in a fit of pique is, is not a fair way to describe it, but he believes he has been wronged, right? He knows that he is not guilty of the death of Cyrus, right? That, like, again, like in the original version, he kind of is the cause of it, but he wasn't trying to kill him, and, and it, was, uh, it, it wasn't nearly as bad as it looked, right? Uh, you know, in, in the Silmarillion version, you know, Maglor comes... Or, not Maglor, um... Uh, uh, you know, the heavy-handed dude. Oh my goodness. 
It's been a long day. Um, Mablung, thank you. God, goodness, thank you, everybody. Mablung uh, comes in uh, and uh, uh, and you know catches him right as Cyros is plunging naked into the cliff, and Doran's like, "I know this looks bad, right? Uh, you know, it looks uh, um, it looks uh, it looks awful." He knows it's not as bad as it looks, but he won't go back and st- right. But not only does he um, does he does he he refuses to stand trial, right? He sort of presumes that injustice is going to be done to him, right? If I go back to trial with you, I know I'm not going to get a fair shake, so I'm just going to leave under the assumption that I'm being. Ju- and then, of course, he is acquitted. In fact, right? Even in absentia, he's acquitted. Um, so. You know, uh, so Fingal is left to send his pardon after him. There's no wronged here, right? He doesn't leave with that sense. He doesn't. He doesn't go off on the beginning of his travels here with that sense of now I am an outlaw. Now I am. Um, I mean, he calls himself an outlaw, but again, in shame, right? He he feels himself to be guilty and unworthy to remain. Not that he has been wronged, right, um, by the injustice of the king. Um, good, yes, Sarah, it does sound like he's punishing himself by leaving. Absolutely, I agree with that. Um, uh, yeah, Yana, he does blame himself more. Um, yeah, and, and James, I think it's a good distinction. You know, in, in a sense, he's doing the same thing, right? He doesn't stay for the trial or else he would know that he would have been pardoned. Um, but um, uh, but James uh, says he, that what he's doing here it feels more like ignorance than pride. It's very much pride uh, in 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 the later version. He's not leaving arrogantly. You know, he's uh, he's leaving in 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 shame and self recrimination. Um, so let's move on to the next horrible phase of Turin's life, uh, the Beleg incident. Yet Turin, in unhappiness, believing the hand of all against him and the heart of the king become that of a foe, crept to the uttermost bounds of that woodland realm. There he hunted for his substance, being a good shot with the bow, uh, for his subsistence. Sorry. Uh, yet he rivaled not all the, uh, but he rivaled not the elves at that, for rather at the wielding of the sword was he mightier than they. To him gathered a few wild spirits, and amongst them was Beleg the Huntsman who had rescued Gumlin and Turin in the woods aforetime. Now in many adventures were those twain together, Beleg the elf and Turin the man, which are not now told or remembered, but which once were sung in many a place. Um, okay, so we have now Turin and his outlaw band, um, which is way less shady in this version of the story. right? Uh, I, this feels sort of refreshing compared to, you know, Turin the thug outlaw chieftain that we get in the later story. Um, you know, there's an there's an air in the later version which is almost like Turin saying, well, if I'm going to be considered, you know, a murderer and a horrible person by, you know, the people of Doriath, I might as well become one. I mean, it's not it's not exactly how it works, but it's almost like that. Um, we don't get that here at all, right? He, he, he flees, again, believing in unhappiness, believing everyone's hand was against him and that the heart of the king was that of a foe. Um, we see him crept to the uttermost bounds of that woodland realm. 
notice how much less brash that sounds, how much, uh, how, again, how much more pitiable, right? He's creeping to the outer, but he doesn't even leave the woodland realm, right? He can't bear to go, but he, he can't stay because he believes the, the heart of the king has become that of a foe, but he can't bear to leave either, so he just creeps out to the uttermost bounds and, um, and hunts for his subsistence. Um, and some people around there join him. Um, and, uh, yeah, they're wild spirits, not brigands, as Nick Marazzo says. Um, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and he and Beleg take part in many adventures. Doesn't this sound, this sounds very, uh, this sounds very, very Robin Hoodish to me, right? Uh, Turin and Beleg were never, but this, this, doesn't this sound like, you know, Beleg the elf, Turin the man, and their band of merry men, uh, you know, off in the woods, uh, hunting for their subsistence, uh, killing the king's deer. You know, I mean, there's, there's something kind of, I'm not saying that Tolkien is overtly modeling this on Robin Hood or anything like that, um, but it's more of that kind of, this, again, them and a few wild spirits, right? Having adventures, um, you know, it's he's he's gone in unhappiness, and yet he's now carved out this like little time of of happiness. Notice they're not accomplishing great deeds, right? Um, they are not, as in the later versions of the story, becoming mighty captains in the entire area and turning back. You know, the forces of Melkor. We don't have that, right? Um, we don't have. Uh, very notably absent from the later edition is any parallel to the Dragon Helm, right? There's no sense of of Turin taking up or maybe not being willing to take up sort of, you know, the mantle of, you know, a, a leader among men. Um, this is more... Um, uh, this is more... Personal, I think is what I want to say. That is, what we see here is like Turin recuperating his own life, right? He's not lost everything um, because he still has Beleg the Huntsman, who himself seems to have a much lesser position as far as externally. Um, he's still important in the story, um, but does not seem to be quite so important in the in the court of Thingol, or excuse me, Tinwillant, um, as uh, Beleg Strongbow is in the later version. Um, but again, for one who got not love easily and who felt that all that he would never again see the face of any whom he loved, to find that a few, you know, daring wild spirits have joined with him and banded with him, and most notably, you know, his 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 friend and former rescuer Beleg, is um, is lovely, right? I mean, it's it's uh, you know he's left in unhappiness and yet now he's found, if not joy in the same way as before is sort of making another life which is if not heroic at least not um not dishonorable and yet it is somewhat heroic again it's not given any of that kind of stature of you know having continental historic significance but many songs are sung uh about the deeds that were done by Beleg and Turin, nevertheless. Um, but um, that uh, doesn't end well, as we'll get to. Um, Turin and Beleg are attacked by orcs. Right, none of the business with meme, no, uh, no betrayal. They're just uh, they're just attacked. Um, 
by a larger-than-usual band of orcs. All were there slain, save Turin and Beleg, and Beleg escaped with wounds, but Turin was overborne and bound, for such was the will of Melko that he brought that he be brought to him alive. For behold, dwelling in the... Now, 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 hang on to this, because this I find especially interesting here. For such was the will of Melko that he be brought to him alive. For behold, dwelling in the halls of Linway, about which ha- about which had that fay Gwetheling, the queen, woven much magic and mystery, and such power of spells as can come only from Valinor, whence indeed, long time agone, she once had brought them. Now, in the syntax of this sentence, it can be kind of hard to trace where we're going. Turin had been lost out of his sight. Okay, let me go back syntactically a little bit here. For behold, dwelling in the halls of Linway, Turin had been lost out of his sight, out of Melko's sight. And he, Melko, feared lest he, Turin, cheat the doom that was devised for him. Therefore now he purposed to entreat him grievously before the eyes of Urin. But Urin had called upon the valor of the West. Okay, hang on, we'll come back to that. Um... See what just happened there? While Turin was in Artenor, while he was with Tinwellent and Gwetheling, um, uh, or Gwendoling, while he was in Artenor, he was out of the sight of Melko, and at risk of, t- or at, you know, had the chance of cheating the Doom that Melko had devised for him. Do you see what that means? You know, go back... All right, I'll go back a little bit here. Go back to Turin's unhappiness here, right? All this stuff, right? Um, Fortune did not follow him for few things that he desired greatly came to him and many things at which he labored went awry. Um, when we're reading that, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, I mean, dude got cursed by Milko, right? Milko said, it was, it's going to be, his life is going to be miserable, and I'm going to make sure everything's awful. And it sounds like, okay, see, look, here's the curse of Milko being, bearing fruit. No. No. Apparently not, in fact. While all this stuff is going on, you know, while he's, while fortune is not following him, and his, uh, you know, the things at which he's laboring are going awry, he's cloaked from the sight of Milko. In fact, the whole reason Melko has him captured and brought back is because he wants to start beating on him, right? Um, because he thinks, oh, that Turin chap has escaped from, uh, uh, from unhappiness scot-free to this point, right? I better start the suffering or else I'm going to disappoint Urin, right? I told Urin I was going to make his son suffer and I haven't delivered on that yet, right? So I, I, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta bring him back over here so that I can do some really, con- inflict some really concentrated suffering on this Turin chap, right? Isn't that interesting? The unhappiness of Turin. He's already said, I feel like there's a curse on me. Again, you know, when he says that, right? Is there a curse on me? Right? And we're all like, dude, yeah, there is. Right? Except, yeah, and yes and no. Right? Apparently, the curse wasn't affecting him. So, yeah, exactly, Sarah. The accidental killing doesn't seem to be Melko's fault. Um, fascinating. Isn't that? Now, let's go back to uh, 
let's go back to the passage, which I didn't finish there. So, okay. So we get that bit. Then, okay, he's purposing to, to, to treat him grievously. I'm going I'm to bring it back, and I'm going to start inflicting some suffering, suffering at last on this touring guy. But Urin had called, but, but, I love the preposition at the beginning, but, to counterbalance that intention by Melko to inflict suffering upon Turin, Urin had called upon the Valar of the West, being taught much concerning them by the Eldar of Kor, the gnomes he had encountered, and his words came, who shall say how, to Manwe Sulamo upon the heights of Tiniquitil, the mountain of the world. Nonetheless, was Turin dragged now many an evil league in sore distress, a captive of the pitiless orcs. Okay. Urin had called upon the Valar, and were explicitly told his words came to Manwe Sulamo upon the heights of Tenequitil. He was entreating, he was petitioning for his son, for Turin, to Manwe, and Manway heard him. Nonetheless, was Turin dragged now many an evil league in sore distress, a captive of the pitiless orcs. Okay. Um, let's keep going. We'll come back to this. Yeah, Tom, Tom Hillman says sometimes the answer to a prayer is no. Yes, that would seem to be that would seem to be one of these times. Um, Let's 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 keep going. Um, Noldoli too there were who were under the evil enchantments of Melko and wandered as in a dream of fear, doing his ill bidding, for the spell of bottomless dread was on them, and they felt the eyes of Melko burn them from afar. Um, I love that that the spell of bottomless dread. Um, this is one of there there are there are a bunch of phrases that Tolkien uses in the Book of Lost Tales, which I find just really resonant with mythic significance. Just a phrase all by itself. Um, uh, Dreamer in the Tower of Pearl is one. Uh, a spell of bottomless bottomless dread is another. Um, Love it. Anyways, they feel the eyes of Melko burn them from afar. Yet often did these sad elves, both thrall and free, hear the voice of Ulmo in the streams, or by the sea marge, where the waters of Syrian mingled with the waves. For Ulmo, of all the Valar, still thought of them most tenderly, and designed with their slender aid to bring Melko's evil to ruin. Then, remembering the blessedness of Valinor, would they at times cast away their fear, doing good deeds, and aiding both elves and men against the Lord of Iron. Okay, so we're told A, Urin is petitioning to Manway who is hearing him. We're told B, that Olmo is still paying attention to what's going on here in the Great Lands, um, that his voice is his voice can still be heard on the shores and in the streams, and which often has a very concrete and positive effect. Uh, for good, right? It, the, we've got the, the, these description of the elves who these elves who are pulled out of the bottomless dread of the spell of Melko. Um, you know the the, the the burning eyes of Melko, uh, and uh, and and regain hope and become agents of good, um, almost agents to bring Melko's evil to ruin, right? Um. Uh, even even though their aid may be slender towards that end, yet nevertheless, that's the end that they're working to with Olmo's help. All right. 
then in the, uh, the transition here is the one that blows my mind. Now was it that it came to the heart of Beleg, the hunter of the elves, to seek after Turin, so as his own hurts, so soon as his own hurts were healed. Now was it that it came into the heart of Beleg, the hunter. It doesn't explicitly say that Ulmo whispered to him that he should go and rescue Turin. But the juxtaposition of these things, um, and having just given us this long paragraph about how the whispering voice of Olmo comes up through the streams and, and, uh, and, and, you know, suggests these actions, these good deeds, uh, to strike a blow against the evil of Melko and, and puts them into the, into the hearts of despairing elves, um, now, having said that, I'll mention that it somehow came into the you know it came into the heart of Belag the hunter to seek Turin. Um, uh, oh, uh, just to, to clarify, these are el- these are the elves that have been taken by Melkor and and have been damaged by him. They have been bound with the spell of bottomless dread. Um, so these are these are. These are uh, Noldoli, as it says, you know, the waiter Noldor, um, and uh, they're they're serving Melko, sort of serving Melko. Um, uh, they they are, this these are the precursors of those escaped thralls who are distrusted by the other elves in the Silmarillion tradition. Um, because they've been like infa- they are still under Melkor's sway. They're not really they're they're loose, but not really free. Um, and uh, Yana says, "Doesn't this almost make them like orcs?" Yes, it does make them like orcs. Um, they're not orcs exactly, but um, uh, but uh, there does seem to be some similarity there. Um, but um, Nick asked, "Did they actually do evil deeds for Melko?" Yes, yes, some did. It, that's what it sounds like. Um, uh, th- th- it says that they they do his his ill bidding. Yeah, um, you know. So again, even in the later even in the later version, we still see echoes of this. You know, and that uh, that you know that people the other elves suspected them, and their suspicions weren't always untrue. Right? Um, he's a little stronger in the earlier versions to say that they, they are actually doing wandering as in a dream of fear doing Melko's ill bidding they're not really in their right minds um, you know they, they're wandering as in a dream of fear right um, it's not like they are active servants or, or in sort of willing collusion with Melko um, but they're enchanted they're under they're, in the, they're under the spell of bottomless dread um uh, so Arthur's asking, did this thought come into the heart of Beleg from Melko? No, I think it sounds like it came from Olmo. Which, on the, well, on the one hand, again, sounds like the kind of thing Olmo would say, right? Rescue your friend. Resist the will of Melko. Prevent Turin from being brought alive into uh, Melko's clutches uh, and tortured uh, before his father. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Except for how it turns out. Um, and uh, 
and there's Manway not paying a lick of attention to his dad either. Um, that's exactly what I find so interesting about it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Roy says, uh, this is another reason why this story is told so frequently. The Valar and men have a strained relationship. Um, yeah, yeah. Certainly, the ways of the of the Valar are very much more mysterious to men than to the elves. Um, and I agree. Roy, this story show, shows that. Shows that really clearly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, The, just the death of Beleg. That whole scene, of course, is very similar. You know, it doesn't change all that much. Even the details of it don't change all that much uh, from the early version to the later version. Excuse me. But, um, I... At the same time, one, the, the main thing, I, I don't want to look at the passage mostly because it's so horrible. The death of Beleg I find more painful than anything else in the Turin Turinbar story. And I find again this version even more sad because of the, uh, the to me the primary difference between the way that the death of Beleg is described in this version compared to the later version is the detail. Um the whole thing is sort of passed over in summary. That is, you couldn't you couldn't dramatize it, right? Based on the the action cues that are given to you, um, you know, in uh, in the Silmarillion version, we get the business about like the pricking of his foot, right? How he's accidentally, uh, you know, uh, stabbed by the sword, you know, uh, you know, gouged by the sword, and wakes up. And wrests the sword from him, and then in the someone just says, "And slew Beleg Cuthalian." Right? Um, this is a very sort of bald statement that this is the horrible thing that happened. And then in the flash of lightning, he sees his face. Um, here, we get his words, we get his actions, right? And the whole thing—it makes it. Not only does it make it so much more vivid and so much easier to picture, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's so much easier for us to imaginatively invest ourselves in this scene and, you know, kind of imaginatively come alongside Turin, both in, you know, in, in waking up and believing himself tortured and then sort of seeing how he acted. Um, Christopher Tolkien is, is good on this point in his analysis in the, in the notes at the end, um, that we are sort of given the physical explanation for why the tragedy happened. That is, why was Beleg not able to call... You know, when Turin woke up, why didn't Beleg immediately yell? You know, say, Turin, it's me! It's me! It's me! Why doesn't he say that? Because he can't, right? Because the very first thing that Turin does is knock the wind out of him. So poor Beleg can't speak. Um, You know, he's, he's there, like, gasping for breath and trying to cry out and can't until Turin 
half severs his throat. So like first he's got the breath, no- you know, the wind knocked out of him, and then he gets his windpipe severed. Um, you know, so that that uh, and so both the the horrible image, you know, the way we're invited to picture it so much more vividly, right, with a wound in the neck, um, you know, and this, you know, that idea of you know Belleg, you know, sort of thrashing desperately for you know trying to get breath to 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 tell Turin who he is, and then getting stabbed in the throat, um, it's just so awful, um, and. And again, in the context of this story, um, this has still been the story. You know, Arthur, I come back to the point that you made earlier on about, um, you know, this is the story of, you know, Turin's abandonment issues, you know, how much more prominent those are. You know, the story of the boy who was separated from his mother and has grown up loved by so few. And, you know, and then he has that, you know, there's the terrible accident with the drinking vessel, and, and he believes that he's lost everyone that he loved, except, as we said, well, well, but Belleg comes with him, right? He hasn't lost everybody. Um, he still has his, his, his band of merry men and, and, uh, uh, and his one friend who stuck with him, and now he's killed him. Um, and it just, it's... You know, there's a way in which the killing of Beleg in the later version is even worse in, like, a bigger picture sense, right? Beleg has, is so devoted to Turin, um, so humbly devoted to Turin, that is, you know, he, he, he comes down from his station, he leaves behind his place, um, you know, he gives up everything to follow Turin in, in, you know, in love for him, uh, and to bring, you know, he, he really, Beleg, in, in the later Silmarillion version, really has devoted his life to trying to rescue Turin. Um, so in that sense, it, it's, it's sort of a, a greater, bigger, sort of more horrible, more grandiosely horrible tragedy um, when Turin accidentally kills him. But the personal tragedy of this hits even... He's like, you know, no, now he's... If he thought he was alone, if he was weeping uh, thinking he was alone with the wine on his hands back, you know, uh, at the stream outside the halls of of Tinwillant... What a terrible foreshadowing that turned out to be of now he has blood on his hands and it's his best friend's blood. Uh, And, uh, you know, under so much more horrible circumstances. And now he has lost everyone who loved him. Um, And it's just, it's just also, it's, it's more awful. Um, I, I, I find it's at least it's more awful in the sense that again I I feel much worse for Turin himself. My sympathy is so much more with Turin here um, than uh, than it is in the later versions. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, moving on to his time with the with the uh, Rodolphin, um There are two scenes I really want to look at there before we get to his final name change. Or, or I should say, till we get finally to his name change. Of course, uh, uh, you will notice that he 
somewhat refreshingly, I'm sure, to many readers, changes his name so much less frequently uh, in uh, the uh, older version than he does in the later versions. Um, when he goes uh, to Oradreth, um, he gets, well, not his, not, not a new, well, sort of a new name. He gets a new identity. Let's look at this passage here. Now, despite the wisdom of their of their wisest, such bitter words confused their counsels and delayed. This is Turin saying about how they shouldn't hide, how they should fight openly. And there were no few of the stout-hearted that found hope in them, being sad at the thought of abandoning those places where they had begun to make an abiding place of peace and goodliness. But Turin begged Oradreth for a sword, and he had not be, he had not wielded a sword since the slaying of Beleg but rather had he been contented with a mighty club. Now then Oradreth let fashion for him a great sword, and it was made by magic to be utterly black, save as its ed- save as it- at its edges, and those were shining bright and sharp as any as as but gnome steel may be. Heavy it was, and was sheathed in black, and it hung from a sable belt, and Turin named it Gerthalfin, the Wand of Death. And often that blade leapt in his hand of its own lust, and it is said that at times it spake dark words to him. Therewith did he now range the hills, and slew unceasingly, so that black sword of the Rodothlim became a name of terror to the orcs. And for a great season all evil was fended from the caverns of the gnomes. Hence comes that name of Turin's among the gnomes, calling him, calling him, calling him Mormagli, or Mormakil, according to their speech, for these names signify Black Sword. What I would point out, what really jumps out at me in this passage, um, is uh, the, in my mind, somewhat ambivalent place that this gives, um, or sort of ambivalent status this gives to to Turin's role in the fall of the Rodothlim in this story. Um, again, in the later version, we have Turin. Um, remember when uh, when Glaurung in the later story is uh, uh, you know trying to make Turin feel bad about himself? Um, he calls him a counselor foolhardy, right? Um, it's very clear in the in the later story that Turin's counsel is wrong. We know it's wrong. Olmo told Finrod, right, to hide himself away and revealed to him the caverns where Nargothrond was built. Um, Turin is at first implicitly opposing the word of, of Olmo in telling them to abandon the secrecy that Finrod led them into in taking them there in the first place. But then, of course, he is explicitly rejecting the advice of Olmo when those messengers from Olmo show up and say, don't do this, throw the bridge down, stop what you're doing, and Turin says, heck no, we're not doing that, right? Um, So again, it's clear that he is determined, right, that this is how things are going to go, and it's not a great idea, uh, but, uh, and it leads to destruction, and so it's, it's like... It's pretty clear in the later story that the downfall of Nargothrond is pretty squarely Turin's fault. Now, 
maybe it would have fallen eventually, but nevertheless, it's his fault that it fell. I think that is a great deal less clear in the early version. Um, and one of the things, this passage really jumped out at me in that way. Um, <clears throat> the sword, the black sword, is given... So on, on the one hand, Oradreth is saying, the way we do things here among the Rodolphim is to hide, right? And we strike from secrecy, and we don't let anyone know where we live. That's who we are, that's what we do, right? And Turin's like, actually, no, I think we should fight openly. Um, and Oradreth makes him his sword, right? Um, the black sword of Nargothrond, again in the later versions, um, that is the identity. That identity is is part of that identity, you know, a central part of that that identi- identity of the Mormigil is that rash counselor, right? Um, the, that, that one who undid Nargothrond. Um, the Mormigil in the end, was the death, not only personally of Oradreth, but of but, but of all of Nargothrond. Um, and he brought that sword with him there, right? It needed, it was reforged there, but he brought it with him. You know, he, he it, all of the things which lead him to make the decisions that he does are things that he imports, right? The sword is made for him there and given to him there, and it's it's dodgy, right? Um, I mean, this uh, wand of death. It's. Ma- I mean, they make him a really awesome sword and everything, which is, I, you know, which is kind of cool. But, um, but it's a pretty questionable thing that they give him, right? Um, uh, it, it spake dark words to him, and the blade sometimes leaps in his hand of its own lust. Of its own lust, memory talked about lust. It means of its own desire, right? It's the, the sword just uh, sometimes draws itself, right? There's Turin minding his own business when all of a sudden, whoop! The sword leaps out of its sheath into his hand, right? Um, again, it's like this is almost acting like an external force on him, right? I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I think that that element is there. It's not part of him. It's given to him by the elves, and then they name him after it, right? All that stuff doesn't come from... It's not a reflection of Turin's policies. It's not a reflection of... Um, I mean, it's connected with his policies. He asks for a sword so that he can fight openly, as he's argued he should. So it's connected there, but that's why I use the word ambivalent at the beginning. It pushes both ways, I think. Um, it's harder to see that this is... Um, uh, uh, it's it's harder for me to see that this is clearly the downfall of the Rodolphin is entirely Turin's fault, um, and he should have known better, and he had warnings, and he disregarded them. Um, a couple of you are arguing that swords don't go whoop. I don't know, but I think I think this I think that uh, the wand of death might have whooped sometimes. Um, we'll come back to the whooping of the sword uh, <laughs> next time. Um, I. Needless to say, I'm going to want to talk about the final speech of the sword um, and some comparing and contrasting of the last words of, uh, of, uh, of Turin's sword, uh, I think are extremely revealing in these two stories. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, 
Yeah, yeah. So, there seems to me, maybe the Rodolphin don't like to fight this way, but this kind of fight is in them. You know, this kind of, that they're the ones generating the black, morally sketchy, bloodthirsty, violence-inducing swords here, and giving them uh, to Turin, which leads them to assign him this name. Um, they name him after the sword that they make for him and give to him. And that seems to me to really change the dynamics of what goes on with him uh, uh, and the Rodolphlum. Um Another thing which, uh, again, really, for me, changes the dynamics of the end of the story of the Rodolphlum is after the battle. Um, what happens, especially with Phylivrin, um, the, uh, uh, the, the girl. Um, then leaving Lord Oradreth dead, Turin went to the places of Galweg's abiding, that is, her dad. And there was Phylivrin, weeping bitterly at the tidings of her father's death, but Turin sought to comfort her, for the pain of her heart and the sorrow of her father's death and of the ruin of her folk, she swooned upon his breast and cast her arms about him. So deep was the ruth of Turin's heart that in that hour he deemed her, he deemed he loved her very dearly. Yet were now he and, F- and Flinding alone, yet were now he and Flinding alone, save for a few aged carls and dying men, and the orcs, having despoiled the field of dead, were nigh upon them. Thus stood Turin before the doors, with, with Gurthulfin in hand, and Flinding was beside him, and the orcs fell on that place and ransacked it utterly, dragging out all the folk that lurked therein and all their goods, whatsoever great or little worth there might there lie hid. But Turin denied the entrance of Galweg's dwelling to them, and they fell thick about him, until a company of their archers, standing at a distance, shot a cloud of arrows at him. Now he wore chainmail, such as all the warriors of the gnomes have ever loved, and still do wear. Yet it turned not all those ill shafts, and already was he sore hurt when Flinding fell, pierced suddenly through the eye. And soon, too, he had met his death, and his weird had been the happier thereby, had not that great drake coming now upon the sack bidden them cease their shooting. But with the power of his breath he drove Turin from those doors, and with the magic of his eyes he bound him hand and foot. Um, in the later version, Turin leads the army out into the battle where they're destroyed. He not only, he, you know, sort of fails twice. You know, he sort of fails as a general strategically, fails as a general tactically, is defeated on the battlefield, leaves the battlefield um, where his men are being slaughtered, which is usually not counted as one of Turin's very bad deeds, but it's not a very good deed either, uh, and comes back when it's far too late uh, to uh, to Nargothrond. Here, he doesn't come back when it's quite too late, but... Um, It's almost too late. It's certainly too late for him to succeed in doing anything, although he almost manages successfully to give his life defending Phylivrin. 
Um, which, as the narrator tells us, his weird would have been happier had he done so. Um, his weird just means his fate, his destiny. Um, uh, that word, weird, comes directly from the old Anglo-Saxon word uh, weird, uh, W-Y-R-D, um, which means fate, destiny, uh, doom. Um, the, the, those uh, who was it just asking about doom, Mark Ingram was asking about that. Um, weird and doom, yeah, they're they're very, very, very similar. Um, but, but he doesn't just come back to where the dragon is already ruling, you know, uh, over the captives. He comes back in time to stand between Phylivrin and the enemy. Um, and make a wall of slain in front of the door of her house, of her of her dead father's house, and um, uh, and almost sacrifice his life standing in the doorway. Uh, this is not exactly a cheerful ending of the story, but it's how many northern heroes end their stories. Um, uh, uh, being finally torn down or shot from a distance uh, as they stand over a heap of corpses that they have made in front of the door of the building that they are, uh, you know, without true hope of victory, defending uh, with their to their to their last breath. You know, uh, it's a way to go. Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a pretty heroic way to go. Um, not a happy ending, but a but a, a satisfying ending in a sense. And then you get that beautiful but kind of awful in its way moment of his realization now. Oh wait, maybe I could love her, right? So deep was the ruth, the pity, the sorrow of Turin's heart that in that hour he deemed he loved her very dearly. Um, now he's thinking, oh yeah, actually I do love her dearly, don't I? Um, again, almost too late. Yeah, Matthew says it worked for Boromir. Exactly! Exactly. Uh, and he came this close to Boromir's death, right? Orc arrows from a distance? I mean, it was... He almost had it all going there. Um, uh, and he... And I think that, all, again, although it would hardly, it doesn't exactly make for a happy story... We could still say of Turin, had he died of these orc arrows here, we could still say of Turin, as Faramir says of Boromir, he died well, achieving some great, some, some good thing, right? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, so, um, so ends his brief extremely brief, about five minute long love affair uh, with Phylivran, um and his attempt to give his life heroically um, thwarted by the dragon. I gotta let you go soon, but let's look at the dragon and his name change. Wonderest thou not wherefore I have withheld death from thee, O Turin Mormakil, who who was who wast once named brave? Then Turin remembered all his griefs and the evil that had fallen upon him, and he said, Taunt me not, foul worm, for thou knowest I would die, and for that alone methinks thou slayest me not. But the drake answered, saying, 
Know then this, O Turin, son of Urin, that a fate of evil is woven about thee, and thou mayst not untangle thy footsteps from it whithersoever thou goest. Yea, indeed, I would not have thee slain, for thus wouldst thou escape very bitter sorrows, and a weird of anguish. Then Turin, leaping suddenly to his feet, and avoiding that beast's baleful eye, raised aloft his sword, and cried, Nay, from this hour none shall name me Turin if I live. Behold, I will name, an, I will name me a new name, and it shall be Turambar. Now this meaneth conqueror of fate, and the form of the name in the gnome speech is Turumart. Then uttering these words, he made a second time at the drake, thinking indeed to force the drake to slay him, and to conquer his fate by death. But the dragon laughed, saying, Thou fool, and I would I had slain thee long since, and could do so here and now, and if thou would and, and if I will, thou and if I will not, thou canst not do battle with me waking, for my eye can cast once more the binding spell upon thee, that, that thou stand as stone. Nay, get thee gone, O Turambar, conqueror of fate. First thou must meet thy doom, and thou wouldst overcome it. Notice, this is to me one of the most striking differences between the Turin that we meet in this story and the Turin that we meet later on. What he means by the name Turambar, right? Um, those are the only two names that he shares in common between the two stories, Turin and Turambar. But... Um, what he means by it is very different, right? What does he mean in this version? Why does he call himself Turambar? Why does he call himself Turambar? How's he going to conquer fate? Yes, by death. By death. That is what... It's not a boast, right? He doesn't call himself Turambar in the Silmarillion or in the Narn, you know, the, in, in the later story. Whether you read it in Unfinished Tales, whether you read it in Silmarillion, whether you read it in The Children of Horan, wherever you read it, when does he name himself Turambar? Do you remember when later... Turin names himself Turambar. When does he call him? At what point in his career does he take to himself the name Turambar? Yes, James. When he thinks he's escaped. Right? With the woodman. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, when he has... Retire. He's in Brethel, and everything's going well, and he's made a new life for himself among the woodmen, um, and uh, you know, and he's he's even found this beautiful wife in the woods and everything, right? And so he's like, "I've escaped my doom, right? I won. Call me Turambar, right?" And of course, like the re readers know, like he's marrying his sister even now, and it's like, oh, that's so awful, the horrible irony. But it's arrogance, right? I mean, as so often in the later Turin story, it's his pride, which is leading to that. This isn't pride, 
right? Um, when he calls himself Turambar, he is going to conquer his doom by dying here. When he talks about escaping his fate, I'm pausing as I so often do before I utter a sentence that contains the word always or never. Um, but I think this is true. In this version of the story, in the early story, every time Turin talks about conquering fate or conquering his doom, he's talking about death. He's talking about his own death. That's how he's going to conquer fate. Not by escaping it, not by triumphing over it, but and that's indeed how, uh, you know, where, where uh, Glorin seems to be taunting him there at the end, right? Uh, First thou must meet thy doom, and thou wouldst overcome it, right? Oh, hey, no, 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 live up to your name, right? O conqueror of fate, right? Go out there and meet your doom and beat it, man. Yeah, d- go do that. That's what you should do, right? That's Glorin's, um, of course, twisted and malicious advice. Um... But he, so I mean, he's not meeting his doom because it, to meet his doom uh, is to suffer from it, right? Um, the w- way that he can escape is through death. Um, yes, Nancy, that's what I meant uh, in the title. Uh, I, I was actually when I was reading it this last time, I couldn't remember whether the word "fay" ever came up, and I kept expecting it to because. Turin is, like, technically fey for a great big portion of this story. Um, but I, I, don't, I didn't catch it. I don't think he ever does. Tolkien ever does use the word fey uh, in this story. But, uh, you know, uh, being as one going willingly to death is, is what fey means. Um, and um, I, but that's for Turin for, for, for this Turin, for our Book of Lost Tales Turin, that's what it means to be Turambar. Um, and his death here, he's, uh, you know, the death that he is seeking, he's been seeking death, right? He was just seeking death in the doorway of Galwig's house. He's now seeking death at the, I almost said at the hands, teeth of the dragon, right? Um, but again, he's st- both times he's he's seeking death but he's seeking to die well right i'm going to i'm going to attack the dragon and assuming that the dragon's going to kill him um combining this with the other things that we've seen in turin's in like the life of young turin here in this earlier story his sadness, his loneliness, his loss, and then much more horrible loss again of everyone that he loved, um, his exile through, you know, sort of self-recrimination and shame, first for the accidental death uh, of, of uh, what's his name? the guy whose name is not Cyrus or, or was it or Log or actually I'm going back to look it up I can never, Orgoth, that's right, Orgoth um, 
uh, uh, so first by the the accidental death of Orgoth, and then uh, by the 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 horrible accidental death of Beleg, um, and now. You know, again, unlike in the other version, he seemed to be like really wanting to do the right thing here and to help the Radothlim, and uh, uh, and they embrace his, you know, advice and rationale. It seems in ways far more profound. It's not a question of him by the power and force of his own personality overcoming the caution and wisdom of uh, of you know the 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 elves of Nargothrond. No, here the Radothlim. Um, they're willing, in fact, many of them are quite happy to go along with him. It doesn't turn out to be the right thing, and Oradreth dies, and, um, uh, and, and, and they're all conquered. Um, but he's still trying to sell his life dearly and accepting his own death, right? Here again, what, for the third time he's going to lose everything that he loves and cares about? Um, again, you know, this is not... The Silmarillion version always gives me the sense of, like, let us watch Turin, um, you know, uh, uh, blow things in, like, more and more spectacular and dramatic ways. Um, You know, let me screw everything up even more colossally next time. Um, uh, But I don't get that impression at all in this story. That doesn't seem to be the way this story goes. Rather, it's um, his own world, you know, like him trying to find a place, you know, him trying to find a people, um, uh, him trying to, you know, do something, you know, to, 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 to do something right and to do good and, um, and, and it falling apart again, even though again, he, di- I mean, he does kill, uh, 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 uh or Fog, or whatever his name is. Um, he, he does kill him, and that's bad, and he does kill Belleg, and, and he does, you know, give the bad advice about fighting openly. Um, but, um, but in none of those does he really seem as culpable. Rather, he seems more like the victim. Um, the, the victim of the unhappiness which is following him. Um, and, uh, and now being manipulated and actively twisted uh, by the dragon. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, Mark. Mark says he was searching the Kindle version uh, for the word fey, and it only shows up once in the entire book, uh, and it's in the appendix of names under Turambar. Okay, I have to see this, Mark. I didn't notice that at all. I wasn't looking at the appendix. Let's see. Let's see if my page numbers are the same. Yeah. Okay, appendix of names. Turambar. For the first element, uh, see volume 1, 260, Meryl e. Turinki. So the T-U-R in Turinki is the same as in Turambar. Uh, that's interesting. Um, QL gives Amarto Embar fate, and also root Mart a piece of luck. Marto fortune, fate, lot, Mart it happens. Um, GL has Mart Fate, Martion Fated, Doomed Fay. Also Umrad and Umbart Fate. Fated, Doomed Fay. There it is, Mark. Um, interesting. Interesting. So Fated, Doomed Fay. So 
so it's suggesting a play essentially within his name um, master of fate um, but also doomed Fay. interesting interesting And it looks like that's the Turu Mart version. Um, is all under the Marto Mart portion of the uh, of the of the name descriptions. So it sounds like it's talking about the the gnome version. Um, very interesting. Very interesting. Um, yeah, James uh, Lebeck asks. So is that why this tale is such a favorite? Because it's so tragic. Then maybe we find the later story less appealing because Tolkien made Turin more conflicted, willful, and proud. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, I think there's, in my mind anyway, there's no question that Turin is a much more attractive character in this one, and, and therefore his his story is more emotionally powerful. I, it's awful in the later versions, Um but again, I don't feel my sympathies rallied nearly as intensely uh, on his side as in these. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Ethan says even more strongly, in the Silmarillion version, my sympathies lie with those whose lives he's ruining. In this version, my sympathy lies much more with Turin. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, very good. And Sarah says he seems a lot less self-important and conscious of his own greatness in this version than, than in the later version. Yeah, I mean, it's it is much easier. I'm not, I'm not saying that this is a a full and satisfying reading of of Turin's character. You know that, that he's always like this, and 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 uh, um, you know this is the most important thing. But but he. Um, it's you know, he's like the kid who wants to do right but keeps screwing up, right? Um, that's that's more what he's like, um, and uh, yeah. So I mean, thinking about the bigger pictures as we were discussing at the beginning about why this is a favorite and what you know, why this is a favorite of men in general and why this this uh, story seems to be so tied to. Um, not the not the the, the the fate of men, but you know sort of the perception of the human condition. Um and that sense of generally well intentioned, you know, talented, well intentioned, um but unfortunate, sad and um you know, just dealt a really terrible hand. Um does seem to 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 speak in much more compelling ways. I certainly think it's easier to see how this version of the story would be a bit more of a favorite. Um, but um, but we'll see. We'll see. So well, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop here. Um, we didn't uh, quite get as far as uh, as I wanted to get, but but not too bad. Um, so we'll pick up here next time. Uh, we're going to go through the end of the story. Um, 
there's a lot to talk about next week, but I hope since we've done a lot of uh, groundwork laying this week, I'm sure I'll be much more efficient next week. Um, But anyway, thanks everybody for joining me tonight, uh, and uh, I look forward to finishing the end of the story. We'll get to the... uh, uh, the incest and suicide and everything next time, so uh, won't that be fun? Uh, good night, everybody. See you next week. Bye.